welcome to episode 47 of 52 Founders. I'm Chrissy Costa, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by May Habib, founder and CEO of Cordoba, a localization platform for global companies. Having emigrated to Canada from Lebanon at the age of five, May is no stranger to the importance that communication plays in our lives. Her empathy for others extends from the product user to her own internal employees, most of whom are international transplants. Today, it's more critical than ever for brands to connect with their customers, and I'm thrilled to see that Cordoba has made it easier for them to do just that. But enough from me, let's hear from May herself. So we're in Cordova's office, and let's talk about the idea and kind of what Cordova is. Great. Cordova is a localization platform, and the idea of Cordova is that it should be ubiquitous that any product is in any language, and to make that a reality, a lot of things have to be easier uh, in software development. So how did you come up with this idea? It seems very niche and very needed, but I just would love to hear the story behind it. Yeah, I was working for a sovereign wealth fund in Asia. I was based in Abu Dhabi and traveling to China a lot and Singapore and East Asia, Southeast Asia. And it seemed like to me that a lot of really interesting things were happening in Asia technology-wise. And I was mostly in a consumer mindset then. And I thought a lot of these products really should be international Uh, But there was a massive language barrier and a cultural barrier, and these products just didn't speak to international audiences the same way they spoke to local audiences. And conversely, you had international apps that were doing really well in California and the U.S. and I'm Canadian and the West, but failed miserably in Asia. And this is 2012, 2013. So um, it just seemed like there should be a better way, and it was that insight that uh, got me thinking and reading and talking to engineers uh, and product people about why it is so difficult to localize and what the localization industry looks like. Mm-hmm. I think that's so interesting. Do you think that comes from you having lived and worked in so many different places where you noticed that barrier? I think it's because English wasn't my first language. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been really aware of the privileges that those of us who think and dream in English have relative to the rest of the world, just because so much of economic output and strength is in English-speaking markets. So Mm -hmm. I've always just been really aware of that. Um, And so I think I had, I was biologically maybe, you know, um, uh, built to to think about that and, and look look at that. And so, yes, it was definitely the travel, but I think I saw it much more acutely and felt it felt the pain much more because I thought about what it was like for people whose native tongue wasn't English. Yeah. I love that you make the point about dreaming in English. That's kind of mm. what I think the mark of someone being fluent is. Yeah. That's what I've been told. Yeah. And so I read that the name was after Cordoba in Spain. Is that yeah, true? Totally. Um, in college, I studied Andalusian poetry. And wow. yeah, was, like most people do. <laughs> it's kind of random, but um, it's really interesting because they're, the, the poetry is interesting for a number of reasons. One, the subject matter it was all about you know God and wine and sleeping with little boys and really <laughs> interesting things. And it was written in so many different languages. And the history of that period is that the uh, art of 
bulk translation really came about and started during that period. And um, we had a lot of the ancient classical uh, Greek texts translated for the first time. Mm -hmm. So it turns out they weren't actually good translations. They were retranslated centuries later, but it did start a movement and a discipline. And a lot of those ideas led to the, once they were in Latin, the European Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And so I always like that as a metaphor for what happens when you unleash the power of ideas and those ideas can flow between languages and cultures. Yes. I think it's funny you say languages and cultures. I feel like language is so your identity. So you look mm. at Spain and what's happening with Catalan right now. Exactly. And I think a lot of that is because they have a unifying language as well that makes them distinctly different than the rest of Spain. Yeah. And so it comes back to communication. And I just find the whole the whole topic really interesting. I think we talked a little bit about this, but I was even in the UK and it's still English, but it's very different. Yeah. And the way things are spoken, like people would laugh when I even said college instead of university. Right. And so if you think about marketing, of course you wouldn't say like, oh, college in the UK because no one says college. Right. Yeah. And they don't say apartment, they say flat. And yeah. they don't say shop, they say job, which I yeah. love. And our software helps customers do that. And yeah. that's really important to sound local because words are the product mm -hmm. there is you know it's not like symbolic systems where it's a gesture for most people most people are using words and if your words don't sound native to them and it's not how the words they use to describe things then your product isn't going to do well yes exactly and so what do you think's been the biggest challenge thus far because it seems like the idea would be one where people would jump at it because it seems like oh it's one of those ideas that makes me say yes mm -hmm. that it's such an obvious need and so I wonder, do you find that people react that way as well? So I think the company the companies that adopt us need to be in a certain part of their life cycle. Mm -hmm. And so if you are a meal pal or you're a Condé Nast and, you know, executives have already decided we are going to go into this market, the, the question is now how. Mm -hmm. So I think once people are at the how, then it is a relatively no-brainer to think about our solution versus other solutions. But I think a lot of people don't know that it's so much easier now than it was. And we talked to a lot of people who may have done localization at Oracle in the mid-90s, and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just did something in 30 seconds that would have taken us you know, weeks or months to do before. Yeah. So the state of the art has changed a lot, and there have been some real step function gains and productivity on the localization side. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. And let's now talk about you. So you mentioned English is not your first language. So where did you grow up? I was born in Lebanon. Okay. I grew up in Lebanon, and then my family immigrated to Canada in okay. the early 90s. And you were, what, you said five? I was five. Five. Yeah. So do you feel like you are more Lebanese or Canadian or kind of a hybrid mix? Yeah, I think I'm a hybrid mix, actually. For sure. I think when I think about like the Western side of myself, I'm definitely more Canadian than I am American. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there are, you know, these Eastern threads. And yeah, I definitely feel Lebanese. So what did you, you know, what did your parents do for a living growing up? My mom uh, stayed at home. We were eight in our family. I'm the oldest of eight. So oh my gosh. We had a lot to do. Yeah. Wow. So she was the really busy one. And my dad worked in Tool and Dye. Okay. Yeah. So do you think a CEO is a, like almost being, you know, I feel like the oldest of eight children, you almost have that mother instinct in you as well, because I'd imagine your mom would rely on you to help out a lot with the younger kids. Yeah, is definitely. That, that, that is a well-oiled machine, that house. Yeah. 
Do you see any par- parallels between that and running your own company? Like you have to kind of Definitely. help run the household? Definitely. I also think that um, being the oldest of eight helped me not resist my feminine leadership traits. I think it's harder sometimes for women to embrace that side of them. So I do have a much more maternal leadership style than my co-founder, for example. So Mm -hmm. I tend to think about and care more, I think. I hope he's listening. uh, (laughs) To when I feel like folks on our team are getting close to burning out or really need to take some time off or things like Mm -hmm. that. So yeah, that definitely comes from having a lot of siblings. It's funny you say that, though. I think as a female... Uh, you're taught to overcompensate and act more as a male when you're in this type of role. And it's it's almost like femininity is viewed as a weakness. And mm-hmm. so I love that you brought that up because it sounds like, you know, when you read all these articles, statistics about why female-led companies end up doing really well, it's because of the traits that make us so uniquely feminine instead of trying to masquerade as, you know, this masculine personality that might not be mm. your, your natural fit. Yeah, and I think folks who um, spend time with us or people on the team really tend to remark on how collaborative it is Mm -hmm. and very transparent. And I do think those I've seen tend to be more closely associated with folks who have a lot of women on the management team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for those who are listening, we're in Cordova's office and it's a very female office, actually, which I love seeing. Yeah. Very rare in the Bay Area, especially in uh, the segment that you're in as well. Yeah. And I'm proud because we've got a lot of incredible women across functions, from Mm -hmm. machine learning to engineering to customer success to marketing to sales. So it's not, you know, just in one, on one team. Yeah. And so, you know, when you were younger, what did you originally want to be when you grew up? Oh, my God. I was an immigrant. I wanted to be a doctor. (laughs) Of course. Oh, that's so funny. Did your parents uh, make you want that or you just wanted to be a doctor? I really felt like that was, you know, how you, I don't know, went up the social ladder, I guess. I don't know. I Like, it did really interest me as well. And I went to Harvard as pre-med, but I dropped that very quickly. It's funny because even my parents, and we're second generation, but it's like doctor is synonymous with success. Yes. I think that's where it came from. It was like, there's a clear path. And yeah. so it's so much more reassuring. You'd be like, oh, well, you go to pre-med, and then you go to medical school, and then you do your residency. And there's like a defined path. Until and you're so like I, 50. Right. And I think I struggled with, you know, once I stepped out and realized I want to do business, there's no clear business path. It's so much harder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so success was, you know, you had to kind of redefine what success yeah, meant for you. definitely. And so when did you get interested in, in entrepreneurship? So I've always been entrepreneurial, and even when I thought I was going to be a doctor, that was like, you know, act one of my three-act life. And Only three acts so three, far? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my parents definitely, you know, imbued that into our upbringing. They were very um, entrepreneurial and did all sorts of things to make mm-hmm. it work when we moved to Canada. And my dad started his own business, and we all worked with him and for oh, him wow. for like a dollar a day, then a dollar an hour. And then I ended up making more money in high school than I did my first year in banking. And it was, yeah, definitely uh, a, an entrepreneurial um, upbringing. So to me, it was very natural that I would seek to do something. And I think after being in a lot of international markets mm-hmm. um, with the fund, it just, I was really just waiting for the idea that I couldn't stop thinking about. 
And so when that idea was Cordoba, I left my job and started the company. But mm-hmm. I think since I was a teenager, I had been thinking and waiting for that idea that I couldn't stop thinking about. Yeah. You brought up the entrepreneurial thing about your dad. Do you think it's hard? Did you see the hard sides of entrepreneurship from him? Like, did you see the raw part or do you think you just saw the good parts of entrepreneurship? That's a really, really good point, And I hadn't actually thought about it till you mentioned it. I think that's <laughs> probably why I can do this. Mm-hmm. Honestly, because I did see the hard parts. Yeah. Um, the hard parts, you know, riding in his car, going to work in the morning, hearing that, like, you know, supplier is going to be super late or mm-hmm. somebody needs to renegotiate some steel quote that he got or a customer is going to be paying so much later. I also learned about cash flow problems. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why we price the way we do. Our ACV is where it's at. Mm-hmm. I will say no and not do, you know, a year up front just because you put in so much work mm-hmm. that the business wouldn't survive. And so that those were definitely lessons I learned from watching him. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep coming back. My last few episodes, this topic of grit keeps coming back. Mm. And it sounds like that is what your dad especially instilled mm-hmm. in you. It's like, if the supplier is backing out, you still have to run the business and get it done. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I think that is definitely something that has been you consistent across the folks that you've interviewed. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of my first surprises moving to the Valley was that people could give up, right? Like if it wasn't going so well, you could just wound up, wind up down the business and do something else. That wasn't part of my upbringing yeah you know you made it a success and you kept going until it was successful so I do think sometimes there is a tension here between um, the grit that gets you to persevere and turn something into a really big idea that is successful and the FOMO of not working on something massive and it's not going so well and you know year two wind down and do something else so you bring up the Bay Area. Why did you decide to make a company here? Because we wanted to build a software company, and if you can be here, there's nowhere else in the universe you mm-hmm. should be. Well, I, I agree, but it's interesting. I agree and I disagree. I think it depends on your market, like you said, it was a software company. But I also think here more than ever, you know, I, I kind of hate that people dispute culture as this thing. I, I think culture is important, but the way, you know, not perks of culture. Mm. Because I think in the Bay, you can have such fluidity between people. And so to really get that retention is really important. And, and so, you know, looking at your parents' job or your background, how do you make this a place where people want to come to work every day when they have so many options to go work somewhere else? I mean, literally, yeah, Dropbox is across the street. So <laughs> this is a real thing. And I think especially given that loyalty is such a big part of my value set, it mm-hmm. was something that I thought about really deliberately. And I think the tie to the mission is really important. So, yes, it's a very female team, but it's also a very international team. Mm -hmm. Even the American folks, like, you know, the pure, quote-unquote, Americans who are on the team, they've lived and worked in half a dozen countries. Mm -hmm. And so there is a global awareness and sophistication and empathy, I think, to folks who have been drawn to the mission. And I hope that you know we really over index on that in our interview process across the board now 
and like attracts like. And so a lot of the last few hires have been uh, referrals from existing mm-hmm. employees. And I hope the next few that we're about to make also, those were also ones that we've met through each other. So loyalty is definitely really important, especially because this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. The product does a lot of incredible things, but wait until the next year comes along, you know? And so we can't afford to lose anybody. Everyone is a really critical part of making us successful yeah so it's just choosing people who want to be here for the right reasons and actually not offering a lot of perks mm-hmm. yeah so I, I think we've uh, I think we have sort of responded to that by saying if you want to work here you want to work here because you like the work you like the technology yeah. you like our customers you like what we're trying to do yeah not because we've got lots of wine and cheese although <laughs> we have that also I was like, why do these aren't the perks that they get? I've seen companies where they buy you a bicycle and like give you gym memberships for the year and pay for all your meals. And that's too and, rich. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I think at some point it's funny to me because I actually think culture can be very homogeneous. And so mm. when you have three meals at work, you're going to attract people that are mainly single without families who, you know, don't. That's interesting. Because I also like, who wants to eat three meals at work? Totally. <laughs> it's kind of nice to have, you know, a life outside of work. And I actually think when I was in Europe this summer, I was talking to these two Swedish guys and they said in Sweden, it, it's viewed as like, if you can't get your work done in 40 hours, you're less efficient than other mm. people. And mm. it was such an interesting juxtaposition from Japan where I went this year too, where it was like, you sleep under your desk to prove that you really care about the company, even though totally. you don't work on anything. Totally. <laughs> so, and we did think about that. Yeah. Um, we sort of have a bit of a late crew of people who just end up staying a little bit later and I almost always end up you know buying dinner for myself and everyone who stays and I thought about like you know maybe the company could cover that but it's I it's weird to me to incentivize people to stay till seven or eight I'd yeah. much rather they go home so definitely I agree with I completely agree with you because yeah. it's there's so much better if you know you have a life and you have outside influences especially given what we do I mean we buy people's brains for a living right and so <laughs> if those brains it. aren't being yeah. re-energized then what's the point it's yeah. a declining asset it's a very diverse perspective and I think your team is diverse not only in gender but I think having a diversity in age and you know locations backgrounds where you're from actually makes for a better product especially yeah. when you're doing something like you what you guys are doing yeah. um, and taking into account cultures from all over the world and and even how workflows might be different for teams yeah. somewhere else I'm glad you brought up age because I think so much of the female problem in tech is ageism. Yeah. Because if you, you know, if you've stepped out of the workforce for a few years to do other things and come back, yeah, that means you're older. And yeah. I think that's like a, I bet if we did real studies that controlled for age, that would, the, the gap would decrease a lot. Yeah. And it's funny because I think age you know, I was talking to my dad about this and he was like, I've always promoted females, but I was like, it's, it's little things that you have to look into your paternity policy. Is it as good as your maternity policy? Mm. Because you could say like, well, that's something you can work on with their husband. I was like, well, I mean, if they only get two weeks off, that's not really working it out. That's kind of, you've made the decision for them. Totally. Um, so it's really viewing it as an equal partnership. And I think in the Bay, you're, you're actually seeing now people do parental leave Mm. instead of just saying maternity or paternity Mm -hmm. leave because of that. And it's a great thing to see because I actually have loved working with so many older colleagues who just bring this wealth of perspective and so much deep industry knowledge. And yeah. it's really, it's just, you know, some, you can't really buy age after a while and experience. Yeah. yeah, totally. I agree with that. And so, you know, I'm thinking about, you said, 
you're trying to find long haul players. Where do you see Cordoba in the next five years? Like, what is a dream success for you? That we have thousands of customers and and not tens of thousands, because even though I'd like to empower tens of thousands of teams, I think you know, thousands represents the enterprise impact we'd like to have and mm-hmm. the kind of company I think uh, we're good at serving and the kind of value we can bring to a big company is, is really there. And we have made it ubiquitous that every product is in every language mm-hmm. and engineers think about language like they do accessibility. It's something that you do by default. Mm-hmm. That's great. And so let's end with our fun questions. So what is another San Francisco startup you really love? Since I usually ask people about the city they're in, especially if they're in a smaller market, but you have, you know, the whole the whole Bay Area to pick from. Yeah, wow. Um, Try to remember what other people on your show have answered so that I'm not, you know, Well, everyone does the typical Bay's outside. I love to hear about products or things that you guys use in-house as well that you just are really big brand advocate for. You know, I really love Gusto. Mm, okay. Um, and they email me a lot to like get our feedback on stuff, and I do ignore them. But <laughs> I just want to say I really love you guys because you know we've done so much um, employee onboarding. We do yeah. our healthcare. I think we were one of the first folks to do all our health insurance through them. Mm-hmm. Of course, payroll, what they're known for. But um, just about everything that they've offered, we've said, yeah, sign us up. And the result is we run this place and we have no admin. Yeah. Oh, wow. We don't have anybody who, I mean, we've got our director of ops does, like manages our Gusto account, but there are three others of us who are admins on Gusto. And it just, it's like the stuff that I really thought we need one full-time person to just take care of because of Gusto, we can basically manage. Oh man, I bet you they love hearing that. Just think about the pricing you could have for one hire. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? Mm. I mean, Elon Musk, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if he can get me to London in 30 minutes, he can have my firstborn child, honestly. <laughs> that would change my life more than anything else. Why London? Because my husband lives there. Oh, yeah, you mentioned <laughs> that, yeah. He is someone that you wonder if he sees the world like everyone else, mm. and he just can't. Yeah, he's a very unique person. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for being on my show. Thanks, Chrissy. It was really awesome this to have fun. you. This fun, yay. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.